The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. Oh, go on, everyone. Happy Monday. Let's go for it. Let's be positive, okay? Despite the, uh, the wealth of issues being thrown at the world. And let's go through some of them in the headlines. So, Asian stocks bouncing into a new week after the Dow hits a fresh record. This is uh, PCE inflation falls below 3% for the first time in almost three years. Evergrande shares are halted from trade after a Hong Kong judge orders a liquidation of what was once Chinese largest property developer. Holsom announces plans to spin off and list its North American unit in New York with the Swiss building materials giant targeting a $30 billion valuation. We're going to be hearing from the CEO and Chairman Yan Yanish at 7.45 CET. And we're watching the wires then for the results of Ryanair with analysts expecting the Irish carrier to post a near 25% rise in third quarter revenue. We'll have all those numbers for you. Right, just to say, as Arabida was saying, we've got numbers out from um, Ryanair, third quarter revenue per passenger up 9%. We'll get some detail on that later on. Plus, we've got numbers out from Philips as well. They say they're delivering strong, fully results. Again, we're going to speak to the CEO in a few moments' time. But I wanted to welcome back to the set, Karen. Nice to see you, my friend. Nice How to are see you? you. Thank you. There is so much going on at the moment, so many counterindicators as well, not least the fact that the oil price has gone up quite aggressively in the last seven days or so as a bit of geopolitical risk finally starts being mm. priced into the price of Brent and that. Is that going to complicate matters on the interest rate scenario? Because my goodness me, I would say arguably this is the biggest data and information week of the year so far in terms of earnings, in terms of FOMC, in terms of payroll, and a hell of a lot as well. The market really looking for some guidance, I think, this week from the Fed, the playbook for 2024, what that's going to look like. And don't forget, there's been a big gap between what the Fed's expectations are around rates versus the market. So oh, let's yeah. see how that's massaged yeah. this week, thanks to the, the Fed communication, but also, I think, thanks to the payrolls numbers that's going to be yeah. quite key. Yeah, I mean, just to say there's a lot of other bits and pieces in there as well, including my favourite piece of data of the week, which is the jolts number as well. Uh, that will be interesting. But as I say, this is a really big week for the market to contend with on absolutely every level. Think about it. Geopolitics, economics, corporate reporting. Karen's going to kick you off at the wall. I think the reason why it's such an important week is also because we've escalated so far when it comes to the US boards. And don't forget, we saw that in 2023, but also an extension of that so far this year as we rounded out the trading week. The Dow, again, a fresh all-time intraday high, third positive week in a row for the likes of the Dow. And you can see, again, uh, about a tenth of a percent to the upside, eking out a gain of about six tenths for the trading week for the, the other major boards. Uh, it was reversal in the Friday session. Mild downside moves for the S&P 500, the likes of Amazon in reverse, also Intel on the Nasdaq. But over the trading week, you still saw gains of roughly 1% on both of those boards. And perhaps uh, it is that elevated level the market's now looking at. Just where are we at when it comes to valuations? We mentioned that it is a busy week and traditionally this is a very packed calendar. We've got the economic side around the Fed and payrolls, but also a raft of big tech companies reporting. And don't forget, these have been the names that the market has been chasing so any wobble or softening up here could have implications. Alphabet uh, out on Tuesday, Microsoft as well. 
Thursday as we push through the week. We've got uh, the likes of Amazon, Apple, Meta also out with numbers after the bell. So the market closely picking through those keyboards. I want to take you to Treasuries, and this is how we sit on that 10-year. We're 4.12 at this stage, and that is a, a fraction off the, the long end, uh, the short end, rather, 4.34, where we're sitting on the two-year. To the oil price, and we mentioned some of the attacks that the market's been looking at and uh, the impact we've seen on some of the geopolitics around the deaths of three U.S. military men. And what we've seen, the WTI Brent price, Moving very much to the upside this morning, spike of about four tenths of a percent. We're 78.33, we're 83.88 on Brent prices. Already some concern around the Red Sea and the shipping lanes, but uh, the events over the weekend again driving the premium back into the oil price. To the Asian markets and what we're witnessing across the Monday session, a patch of red around the China stock market. We're down about four tenths of a percent. The market closely eyeing the developments around Evergrande, the property market, and just how authorities tend to proceed from here. What we've got on the other major boards, it's a firmer trade, isn't it? We're picking up on the back of a slight patch of green on the Dow, but markets in Asia are mostly positive for that Monday session, Steve. Thanks, Karen. That's a super summary. Right, OK, the Fed's preferred measure of inflation moved below 3% for the first time since March 2021. Now, it's uh, keeping pressure on the Federal Reserve, well, to cut rates or certain, I don't know if it does yet. I mean, three, let's go take a step back. 3% is still 50% above target. That's all I'm saying. I know it's come down aggressively and that's what Carl will tell us in a few moments time. But core PCE, which strips out food and energy prices, still grew by 2.9% in December versus a year ago. But I get it. There's a trajectory. Anyway, signs of cooling inflation will keep the debate alive over whether officials will soon cut borrowing costs. While no cut is expected at this week's Fed meeting, close to 50% of market participants are pricing in the first rate cut at the next meeting in March. There's only one person to argue with, I mean, to ask about this. It's Carl Weinberg. <laughs> Chief Economist, High Frequency Economics. Carl, let's just get into the data first up and the progress we've made. You know, the PCE, 5.4%, the level of the increase at the end of 2022. The st- figure that Steve just mentioned, 2.6%, telling you how much progress has been made. Is it enough to be talking about rate cuts? Well, I think the inflation data are clearly pointing. And first of all, good morning, Karen. Good morning, Steve. Glad to be on the program. Uh, The inflation data are certainly telling the Fed that it's uh, the, the inflation target is in sight, that uh, we're headed in that direction, that all the indicators are that we're going to continue that way. So on the inflation data, uh, it's time to start uh, discussing and then soon enough doing uh, rate cuts. But the overall economy has been very strong, and that gives the Fed pause. So the, what's their job here? You know, is their job, you know, the job to uh, generate the best possible result for the economy? Uh, no, their mandate is to minimize the chance of the worst possible outcome for the economy. And that would be a reacceleration of inflation on the back of a strong economy. So we think they're going to take their time before pulling the trigger on rate cuts to make sure that the, to ensure that the worst possible outcome doesn't occur. So we don't get an early launch when it comes to rate cuts, Carl, in your view. But what about the amount of rate cuts the market's anticipating? Five to six, the tally, versus about three from the Fed. Big gap here. So what do we see in terms of a change in expectations? Does the Fed move up or does the rest of the market move down to to match the Fed? 
Yeah, well, the market wants what's best outcome for themselves, which is to get as many rate cuts as fast as they can. People make money when rates are, when rates are coming down. People get excited. The sentiment gets better. Stock prices go up. Corporate profits go up and so on. But the Fed, as I said before, has a different motive, which is to minimize or eliminate the risk of the worst possible outcome. So I think that the market is forced to move to the Fed, just as the Fed is somewhat slightly going to be forced by the data to move toward the market. I think the truth is probably closer to the Fed's three rate cuts rather than the market's four, five, six, whatever they're thinking right now. Uh, and I think that but at the end of the day, we want to listen to the Fed and not to the market. <laughs> there's a metaphor for our times. Carl, um, there's a well-known economist out there, and I won't mention his name, but he, he's won a Nobel Prize, and he keeps banging on about, oh, the supply-side shocks have gone, ergo, we were right all along about inflation. He's ignored the fact that there's 500 basis points of cuts, but the, of hikes, I beg your pardon, to get the inflation down. But what he was talking about was external factors which skewed the picture. Is there a danger that external factors will once again skew the picture? And I'm talking primarily at the moment about events in the Middle East, which have just sent the oil price up eight bucks from its low of the year. Yeah, so let's talk about oil. I was just looking that up in oil back in October went all the way up to 90-something dollars a barrel. Was it 97, I think, was the peak at the end last week in September? And inflation, or what we call inflation, the year-over-year -year increase in CPI and PCE deflators, they kept on falling right through all of that. So uh, oil is a price in the economy, and it's important for sure, but it's not the only price that matters. And in and of by, by itself, it's not enough to cause a resurgence of inflation. It might cause an inflection up in prices, but we're unlikely to see the kind of changes that could uh, throw the train off the tracks. Fair enough. OK, let me go to something on the other side of the equation, then, and that is the fact that I'm pleased to say most Americans who want to work can work, and the unemployment rate remains incredibly low. Payroll comes after FOMC this week as well on Friday. But the fact of the matter is the jobs market is still relatively hot, and I appreciate that there are less vacancies available, but there are still a hell of a lot of vacancies for Americans who want to find extra work. Exactly right, Steve. And that's the constraint. That's why the Fed's going to be cautious about easing. When you're at full employment, which we are pretty arguably, if not added very close to it, then your growth is constrained by demographics, population growth, and productivity growth. And it looks like we're going to get a good deal out of productivity in the fourth quarter. It looks like we're talking about a 3.1% number, I believe, which when we work it through will lead us to about a 2% increase in unit labor costs. And that's very much consistent with the Fed's target. But that's the fourth quarter. The question is what's going to happen in the quarters that are coming up. The risk that the Fed is concerned about is that the economy is running too hot, that we get too much demand growth in the economy to uh, be able to produce the goods and services to satisfy that demand. And that's a formula for prices rising. And that's what the Fed wants to be careful of. That's why they're going to wait. And Steve, we're going to see some strong numbers for the first quarter almost certainly. It's just a matter of arithmetic. You take that end of fourth quarter number that we saw last week for personal consumption expenditures. Well, if that level of personal consumption expenditures doesn't grow by a jot in January, February, and March, the
the fourth quarter is still going to print a 2.1% increase in consumer spending just on flat consumer numbers for the three months of the quarter. That's just arithmetic. So we're going to get, because of the acceleration of the economy at the very end of the year, we're going to get some strong prints for first quarter numbers of activity, and that is probably going to help keep the Fed on pause maybe a little bit longer. Carl, so just piece together the growth profile for us over the course of 2024 for the U.S., because this has been one of the arguments, the reason why there's a valuation gap between U.S. equities and international equities, that it's justified because of the growth story stateside. Just how strong do you think growth will be as we peel away from that first quarter number and look at the overall 2024 picture? Well, we at High Frequency Economics are penciling in a slowdown of growth to 15 to 2% by the time we get to the end of the year. We think there's still drag coming from the increase in interest rates that will still pass through even if the Fed does cut rates during the course of the year. World trade is slow, and that's bad for the U.S. economy. And uh, we still have, you know, drag coming from geopolitical events, and, and who knows what's going to happen. We have uncertainty coming out of that. Um, so we think that uh, economics works, monetary policy works, the economy will slow somewhat. But we're not predicting a recession. We're predicting that the economy will slow to a sustainable rate of growth, not too far beyond full employment, uh, with leaving still some slack in the economy. And that gives us a basis to predict that not only is the CPI and PCI deflators, not only are they going to go back to target, but there's no law of physics that says they're going to stop there. They're going to be falling below target, which sets up a different scenario for 2025. Carl, thanks so much for joining us this morning. Carl Weinberg with us, Chief Economist, High Frequency Economics. A ton of numbers out this morning and Arabile has been looking through Ryanair. I noticed there were a couple of comments too around its Boeing order. Yeah, Karen. So let's take a look at these numbers. I mean, this is a stock, of course, that has been uh, fairly interesting in noting that it has recovered some or most, if not all of uh, the losses then from uh, COVID-19. Of course, the big question mark, and it's something that it had noted about uh, quite recently, is the decision by some online travel agents to remove Ryanair's flights then from their websites, which is anticipated to have hit its earnings in the short term. Well, it certainly has. Why? Because Ryanair in these uh, Q3 numbers has decided then to narrow its 2024 profit guidance. That's now to between 1.85 billion to 1.95 billion euros. Previously, the upper end of that was above 2 billion, 2.05 billion euros. They are saying that they see weaker load factors than expected, particularly in the late part of the third quarter and the upper end then of the fourth quarter. And that is, again, due to that decision by those travel agents to remove uh, Ryanair's flights from their website. Not material effect, they say, over the long term, but certainly in the medium term. We'll continue to unpack those numbers, of course, across the show. But coming up then, Evergrande is ordered to liquidate, marking the final chapter in the demise of what was once China's largest property developer. Plus, Philips is striking a compliance deal then with the US FDA over its ventilator recall. We'll discuss with the CEO, Roy Jacobs, next. And... We'll speak to Wholesome CEO and Chairman Jan Jensik, who, as the firm announces plans to spin off its North America unit next year. Don't miss that first on interview. That's 7.45 CET.
Listen to CNBC's Beyond the Valley, the podcast that explores the biggest tech news from across the globe. Join me, Arjun Karpal. And me, Tom Chitty, every week as we bring you insights into the top stories, unpack the latest trends and find out where the industry is headed. Now available on Spotify, Apple Music and Google Podcasts. Welcome back. As Arabile said before the break, a um, lot of focus on the fourth quarter figures out of Philips today as well. The two sets of announcements. We all know that as well. There's the announcements about the numbers, which uh, let me just go through. Sales, $5.06 billion in the fourth quarter as opposed to 5.33 in the company-provided poll. We'll get to the numbers in a few moments' time. They expect to deliver 3 to 5% comparable sales growth and adjusted EBITDA margin of 11 to 11.5% in 2024. And then there's the looking back. Back where the company is desperate to just draw a line under its Respironics recalls as well. So they've said the following, agrees terms of consent decree with the FDA, takes provision of 363 million euros in the fourth quarter for that consent decree, expects costs relating to this to be around 1% of total revenues in 2024. Uh, Philips Respironics will not sell new products in the US until terms of consent decree are met. Now, let's get straight to the CEO. I'm delighted to say Roy Jacobs has joined us now. Roy, I missed your brilliant conversation with Karen in uh, Davos and had to watch it on catch up as well. So um, we were talking more about obviously bigger issues there. But in terms of the two key issues here that you can almost split this into one Respironics to the rest of the business. Do you want to just address the first issue in our first questions? Nice to see you, sir. Good to see you as well. And uh, happy to be here today to announce that we had a very strong close of the year where we uh, were able to present strong results over the full year as we also committed a 7% growth, uh, significant step-up in profitability of around 310 basis points and very strong cash flow of 1.6 billion uh, that came into the company. And that was based upon the execution of the plan that we laid out earlier in the year, where we said we have three strong priorities, patient safety and quality, supply chain improvement and simplification of the uh, work at Philips. That has been driven the improvements both in sales, also 1 billion of productivity savings that contributed to the profit uh, step up, and also as a result of the better operational performance, a much better and strong cash flow. We also announced, as you alluded to already, that indeed we have now agreed to terms that were proposed by the FDA that are now with the FDA for finalization and court approval. That's a very important milestone because it's important to get the clarity on one hand for the roadmap to compliance, but also very much to restore the business of SRC. And then if you tie that to our guidance forward, actually we can also now reiterate that the plan that we have presented last year, now including the consent decree, is something we are committed to. And in 2024, we continue to improve our performance. And therefore the guidance that we have been given three to 5% sales growth, further profit improvement to 11 to 11.5%, and as well another year of strong cash generation with 800 to 1 billion, actually is proving that we continue to further step up the performance in Philips. Roy, um, you've gone through a lot of issues there. Um, Let me just ask the question, which I think a lot of our viewers want to know is, when you get your FDA consent agreement, that's great. But how much of a line does that draw under other litigation and other issues relating to the respirator recall as well? So the FDA would be a good tick in the box and you, you've, you've gone over that as well. But what else needs to be 
solved and sorted for this to be an issue of the past? There are two remaining uh, important dossiers we are working through. One is indeed litigation and the other is a DOJ investigation. What we said earlier is that we are working also through those. Of course, we are dependent also on the DOJ when they come forward with their investigation, their conclusions. We said we do not expect that earlier than 2025, most likely. We said earlier that in 2024, we hope to provide more insights in the litigation. So these are steps that we continue to take to get to the bottom of this. But as I also said, the important thing is that we are focusing on getting the totality of Philips really to its full potential. And therefore, this first step was important and also gives a lot of confidence that we can continue to provide our exciting innovations to a market that really is in desperate need. Because as we all also were discussing, healthcare really is in a very deep crisis. There's just not enough people to take care of the patients. Technology needs to step in. There's a lot of exciting AI opportunity uh, to apply technology in a different way that needs to be then absorbed into the system, also supported. And that's something that we are very much focused on in 2024 in a world that is volatile, but needs technology and solutions to actually progress. Before I ask you about the core business, can I just run out on the numbers that investors should be thinking about when it comes to further provisioning around the legalities and the regulatory issues? You've mentioned a provision of 363 million euros in the fourth quarter today. What further provisioning will be required in coming quarters? So we, uh, what we said is we took the 363 provision need fourth quarter. We also guided that based upon the clarity we now have, we expect a run rate of 100 basis points that will come into the year of 2024. It's also included in the guidance that we have been given for our 3 to 5% growth for the total company and this EBITDA step up. And then as we mentioned before, litigation, that's a process ongoing. We have not been providing for that because there's no clarity on whether and if so, then what kind of provision would need to be taken. So that's something that still will be ahead of us. That's also why we remain very focused on getting our operational performance to the best and to its full potential. The cash generation that you saw is very important for that. We are extremely happy that we ended this at this 1.6 billion of cash. Um, that is an important milestone to also be prepared for anything that could come in future. And we will continue that focus with a very uh, disciplined capital uh, policy within Philips, um, but most importantly, to really get all of our businesses humming. And what you saw, and we were very excited about, was that both the DNT business, the connected care business, and the personal health business, both uh, all, all three have been growing. We have also been growing in all three of the geographies. So in North America, in Europe, as well as in Asia. Um, and whilst there are different dynamics at play, where we see that China is a bit subdued, that Europe is growing but not the strongest and US actually is the strongest market, we are pulling growth out of every single market of the world. Specifically, can I just take your attention to order intake? I know this is something you're working on improving. I won't be the only person asking about order intake today and I can see it minus 3% in the fourth quarter, but that's an improvement from the minus 5% over the course of last year. So what are the measures you're taking to address order intake and how is it looking? Yeah, order intake is a very important focus area for us. Um, I think it's important to understand, first of all, that the order intake that we are reporting on, the 
minus three is actually 40% of the total sales of Philips. We have 60% that actually is coming out of what we sell in software and services and personal health. And for the 40%, we are coming from a very strong absolute order book, 15% higher than pre-supply chain crisis. And actually we needed to dial up and improve our supply chain to really build that order book down to get shorter lead times. So that's one of the actions. Shorter lead times allows us to actually get more orders and then also deliver these orders faster to market. Secondly, we are also working in terms of how we can accelerate some of these bigger deals that you have been seeing. We have been announcing that we closed the NYU Langwon deal, a close to 100 million deal where we actually sell and provide the full portfolio of Philips to support that system. Now, those are bigger complex deals. We are also working through those and we expect more of them to come forward in 2024. So those are opportunity areas that we are razor focused on to improve. And we also expect therefore that order intake will continue to improve as we have been seeing that we are working it in 2023 um, and that will come back in 2024 to support the strong growth that we have been delivering. And we also forecasting with the three to five uh, 5% sales growth to continue. Um, John Elkin has been a shot in the arm for the company as well with a, a vote of confidence in terms of becoming the biggest shareholder. Roy as well, you don't need me to tell you that. The shares are up 50% from their lows of March last year as well. Any thoughts on what that biggest shareholder wants to do with the holding going forward to build it up some more? We know that they're looking at broader healthcare as well. Are they putting you under any pressure as a secondary question to actually tie up with other uh, innovative healthcare companies? So the investment of Exor into Philips, I think, was a very strong vote of confidence, and we were happy to get them as part of our investor base. Um, on one hand, it's a very reputable investor that actually have been taking investment stakes in companies that have been really doing very well, so they know how to choose their bets. At the same time, they also have been very clear in saying that they support the plan we have. They did a very uh, uh, diligent process in understanding where Philips is going. The plan that we presented in January last year was the basis for the investment, but also they really put a lot of value on the management, the people and the culture that they have been seeing. That does not mean that they are demanding and we expect them actually to want a good return on their investment like every investor in Philips. And therefore they will also keep us attuned with what is happening in the world. For example, they have very strong supply chain experience that they bring to bear, as well as that they're also investing in other healthcare companies where they see trends that uh, might be relevant for us as well. So we are very happy with them. Strong vote of confidence gives additional expertise that we can build on, but also they take the long-term perspective. They see a roadmap of prolonged value creation that Philips is committed to, that they are interested in, and that therefore came together in their investment. Uh, Roy, final one then just on that. Um, I noticed the free cash flow obviously down compared with uh, 2023 going forward, uh, up to 1.1 billion euros there. I, I presume that's partly to do with the costs of the recall and the FDA and what have you. Um, but in terms of use of that free cash flow, just tying into my previous question, uh, any purchases out there on the near term horizon? We have said that actually our full focus is on getting all the great assets that we have in Philips currently performing. So actually we are very much on an organic growth path. Of course, we also will be looking in the market if there are token uh, acquisitions that might be relevant, we will also uh, consider them. 
but we will be disciplined with cash. We will first make sure that kind of we get the most out of our current business. We also invest mostly in that. Then also, as you have seen, we kind of have given dividend, but in script, also to be uh, conservative on, uh, on, the, on the cash side. And we continue to be razor focused on getting that cash generation up. We have been very strong in our account receivables, in our account payables. We actually made sure that uh, we converted strongly into cash. We have inventory also still to continue to work on. So a lot of cash focus will remain there. So that also in 2024, we continue with a very strong cash performance. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market moving news, you can head to cnbc.com or join us again on the show with me, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Cho, weekdays on CNBC.